Well, memory challenge. First John 2.25. And this is the promise he promised us. Even eternal life. Quick review. We talked about the word reason. It's what distinguishes us from animals, insects, reptiles. We reason. To reason is to logically think something out with facts and come to a conclusion of truth. Reason. Christianity, the Bible, is the most re reasonable religion there is in the world. It's the only one where God has done something to make man right with him. All the rest of the religions, man has to do something to make himself right with his God. He has to perform enough, do enough, but Jesus paid it all. God, God did what was necessary for man to be redeemed and reconciled to himself. Righteousness. His righteousness. Imputed righteousness. In book one, the first chapter, I talk about imputed righteousness. That imputed righteousness... When Jesus died on the cross, every one of our grandchildren know this. We've had them as young as four and five memorize this and learn it. They may not understand it. But to know what imputed righteousness, not infused, imputed righteousness is. When Jesus died on the cross, all my sins were imputed or put upon him. But when I by faith receive Jesus as my Savior, all his righteousness is imputed or put upon me. God no longer sees my sin. He sees the perfect righteousness of his Son, Jesus Christ, who is now in me unto and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. I preached the gospel to you, and I preached on the gospel of righteousness. Last night, temperance. The fact when a person does receive Christ, they, in the eyes of God, receive every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It has been settled. But I become a new creature, and old things begin to pass away, and things begin to be new. I have a new life in Christ. God, Christianity is not about God taking a good man and mixing in a little religious behavior and making him a better man. It's about taking a man who's dead in his trespasses and sins and making him alive. Spiritually, we're dead. Our soul, mind, will, emotion, we are alive and functioning. And that's the part that God begins to speak to the soul of man. He gives him in his intellect, his emotion. He speaks to him. And as he does, that soul and spirit, which are inseparable, yet they're distinguishable. I don't want to get into the trichotomy of man. But this part of me is dead to God. This is the part that needs to be alive. And so when the, through the soul, God begins to quicken the spirit of a man and brings him to life. And that soul and spirit that are one come together and meet the Holy Spirit of God within your body. For he that is joined, the same Greek word used by Jesus when he talked, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. When Jesus comes in, the spirit, Holy Spirit, this spirit comes to meet him and you become one spirit in the Lord. And I've got news for you, a new life begins. And when that new life begins, I need to learn. I, teach me your ways, O oh Lord. Show me your paths. And I begin to grow in the grace and knowledge of my Lord. And I begin to bring my behavior in line with my identity. I cannot earn my identity by what I do. You can act Christian. It won't make you Christian. You can go to a Christian church, listen to Christian sermons, and even pray Christian prayers. But until you receive Christ, can I tell you something? You, you are not saved. You are not born again. And the new life does not begin until this happens. What makes a person distinguishable as a Christian or non-Christian is the Spirit of God live within you. 
Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure. The Lord knows those that are his. You and I may struggle with our doubts and our, because we take our eyes off Jesus, look at ourselves and what we should be and we ain't. And all that. Look unto Jesus, this one who brought me to life now and press on. Move on in the journey of faith. Don't be discouraged when you have failures. Get up and get after it. Nothing's really changed in your position with Christ. Grow strong in the Lord. <laughs> Abraham got to the place where he was strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. And he gave him Isaac. To the point he believed that promise, he was willing to take that son and willing to offer him a burnt sacrifice on the Lord in obedience to the Lord's command. He said, I'll do her. And God knew he would do it. Because he knows that's the one. He's the one. You come to the place in your life as a Christian where you know Jesus is the one, he's the only hope, and everything else is immaterial. It's just Christ. It's Jesus. And you get it. He's, he's the one I'm hanging on to. I don't care how the philosophies of the world come at me and everything else the devil wants to do to dissuade me. I know that Christ is my only hope of eternal life. The promise is in him. Now tonight, let me quote our text for you and get into the message. And when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as Paul reasoned with him of righteousness, of temperance, and of judgment to come, Felix trembled. And he said, go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. That's where we're going to go tonight. It's a message I don't really... We won't laugh any tonight. This is one of them topics we, we can laugh about temperance and we can laugh about some of the things. In it. But this ain't one of those messages. Dear God, would you uh, not allow me to get in the way and all of my fumblings at time and would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to understand the truth of this, the seriousness of it? And help us. We don't, we don't know what we'll do if you don't. We're not the ones who hold the keys. You do. Would you please open our... Would you save the lost tonight? If there's somebody here that's been resisting you for a while or whatever their reason, God. Maybe they just haven't heard, haven't understood the truth. Would you speak to them and save them tonight? Give them grace. To come and put their faith in Christ. We ask this now for help. Help this old preacher as I proclaim this truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, judgment to come. This is something he can really reason with Felix about. You want to know why? He's a judge. He knows what it is to sit into the judgment seat, to listen to trial, weigh evidence, come to a decision, a verdict, and he knows what it is to pass sentence, and he knows what it is to see people who are coming in and are going to hear the verdict that he's going to give. And if he says guilty and it's a capital offense, he may well sentence them to crucifixion or to death. And he knows what people look like as he pronounces that sentence. I mean, he has to deal with a bunch of Jewish zealots that are killing Roman soldiers, that are doing all kinds of things. And he knows what it is to pass judgment on someone. But Paul's going to reason with him about judgment to come for him when he stands before the judge of all the earth and how that judge cannot be bribed. He could be bribed. Can I tell you something? The next verse reveals his heart. He had hoped that money would have been given him for Paul that he might loose him. 
He should have never held him in the first place. It wasn't even a legitimate charge. But he knows that this world-class evangelist, we don't know where the Jerusalem Jews are and why they're not maybe coming up, and coming up with the money and saying, let's get this guy out of here. We don't know why that happened. Or maybe they offered and Paul said, no, I'm staying here. This is not legitimate. I don't, we don't know the details of that. But Paul's going to talk to him about the day that he will stand before the judge of all the earth. He will not stand before a jury of his peers. There will be no plea bargainings and no briberies. Somebody say amen if you understand what I'm talking about. There's no deals to be cut at the bar of God when we stand before, and every, according to the Bible says, every one of us shall give an account of ourselves before God. We will not be able to point at some hypocritical Christian and say, that's why I never believed in Jesus. I tell people, if you wait till you find the perfect Christian before you come to Christ, you ain't ever going to come. But if you're looking for a perfect Savior, look no farther. Haste, run immediately, and trust Christ. So we won't be able to blame our parents, the pastors, the church. We won't be able to blame anybody. We will stand naked, according to the Bible, naked, open, and unashamed. And I don't mean physically naked. I'm talking about nothing we can hide that's been in our past. And open and unashamed before the eyes of him we, of whom we have to do. He's going to talk to him seriously. He gets serious with you. He talks to him about this. There's no corruption in the court of God. Loving you, let me say the Supreme Court of this country will one day give an account of its decisions before the Supreme Judge of all the universe. Did you know that? So sometimes we get all twisted, worried, wondered about I got news for you. They will not stand before us, but they will stand before God, just as we will stand someday. And know this, that the judge of all the earth, Abraham said in the book of Genesis, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. God will not be fair. God will not be fair. He will do right. He's going to hit... Deuteronomy 32.4 says he is the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of truth, without iniquity, just and right is he. It's his nature, it's who he is. It's that immutable character of God, he changes not. This is who God is, this is what he's like. He runs things, how just is God? Romans 8.32, he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. The penalty, the punishment, it must be paid. When Christ was at the cross and said, my God, my God, why is the office? Can I answer that for you? Because he's a just God, and as he was taking on your sin and mine, God could not wink at it and say, that's okay. He forsook him because of the love he has for you and I. Justice had to be served so that we, when we confess our sins, he is still faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So many times we think that mercy is God just winking at it and overlooking. It is not. Take a look at the justice of God's mercy. He can give mercy because justice has been served. He is a just God. Verses all through the scriptures talk about the nature and character of the justice of God. Tonight I want to approach this with some sobriety. Definitely seriousness. I read one commentator and said it should judgment should never be spoken about with some without some measure of trembling within the preacher. Some measure of trembling. Paul said this. He said, even tears, even tears when we talk about the judgment of God. We're going to see that 
Felix trembled. He trembled at the thought of this. Paul delivered sermons of warnings. Acts 20, 31, you do not warn people about the mercy of God. You welcome it. You warn people about the judgment of God. He said, I cease not to warn you for the space of three years, day and night, with tears, as I talked to you and warned you. God is not running a bluff when it comes to judgment. Our culture, our society, and we're no different than the Greeks and the Romans and etc. It's in every culture. We compromise with this attribute and character of God. We want to customize it and make it palatable to the human mind. We want to bring God down to our level. He remains high and lifted up. He's one when seen seated on the throne, the people respond, woe is me for I am undone. An instant awareness of my condition. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the Lord, the King of hosts. It's, it's a sobering thing as we approach this, what Paul is reasoning with a man who is a judge about the judge of all the earth, the judgment. I do not know how he started his reasoning. Scripture doesn't tell us. He just says, this is what he did. Righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. We will certainly not exhaust in a 35, 40-minute sermon the subject of the judgment or justice of God. He may have started in Romans 4 because, excuse me, Romans 2, verses 4 and 5, because we know those thoughts have been penned by him to the church at Rome and they're still fresh in his own theology. He may have said something like this, do you despise the riches and goodness and forbearance of God? Don't you know that it is the goodness of God that leads a man to repentance? Do you realize how good God is to people to give them another day of life, another opportunity to look up? Do you despise that, he says? And then the next verse he says, but after thine hardness and impenitent heart, you treasure up yourself wrath under the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The wrath of God against all unrighteousness. I don't know how he started it, but I think he warned him that God is a God of wrath towards sin, judgment towards sin. When you look at the pictures of the cross and Hollywood or film could never capture the reality of it, that even looked good. I have seen a man beat up one time so bad with a tire iron, it was disfigured. His face had an eyeball on his cheek. And it, when you looked at him, you kind of like, it's not even human. Can I tell you something? Christ was beat beyond human recognition. Do you want to know why? It was God judging your sin and mine. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. A holy God wanting a people to be able to enter into his holy presence whom he could only make holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight if the sacrifice had been paid for man's sin. God's serious about judgment. He judged his own son on the cross that we might be delivered. Are you going to hear that message of the gospel and just put it off again and delay it and detour it and everything else? You know what you do when you do that? You treasure up wrath under yourself against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Acts 17.31, there is a judgment day coming. 
Acts 17, 31, Paul had been in Athens and he began to preach on the street and his whole, he said, his spirit was moved within him that the whole city had been given over to idolatry. Alexander the Great who conquered the world said, take the gods of the nations we conquer and we'll take them back to Athens and build a great temple, a great Parthenon and we'll fill the Acropolis with all kinds of their gods and surely we'll get the right one. He went up and talked to them and he told them about the God who created the world and all things in it, seeing he's Lord of heaven and earth and dwelleth not in temples made with hands. He dwells in temples but not made with hands as though he needed anything. God doesn't need anything. God didn't make us because he needed us so he could be God. He was God without us. God wouldn't twiddle his thumb in eternity past. This was a plan in the mind of God. He was going to do this. Why? For his glory, to redeem man, to show his love to have relationship with his creation. You know what? They were listening to the sermon with some interest until he got to this point, verse 31 in chapter 17 of Acts. He says, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained and hath given proof and that he raised him from the dead. Can I tell you something? The judgment is of God is just as sure as the resurrection of Christ. And when he said that, the judgment of God, based upon the fact he raised Jesus from the dead, they rolled their eyes and some mocked and some said, yeah, we'll hear about that later on. But some believed. Some believed and said, we believe that's true. We can't go on the way we're going. God's going to judge this thing. There is a judgment day coming. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed unto man once to die. But after that, a lot of people say there ain't nothing after that. What is your source of truth? Where do you get that? Upon what do you base that hope that there's nothing after this? God has placed within the heart of every person eternity. We can suppress it, deny it, ignore it, etc. But within the heart of every man, there is an ace card when you witness to the Spirit of God is going to aim toward what they already have planted in the heart and is that there's got to be something beyond this. It's appointed unto man. It's an appointment you will keep. You and I will keep all the days of my appointed time, Job said. Will I wait until my change comes? There is an appointment we will keep. It's called death. Who likes to talk about it? Let's ignore it and deny it. But in reality, everybody in this room will one day be a star of a funeral. You will, show, you will be there at the funeral and your loved ones will gather to remember you. If time stands, unless the Lord so, we are a part of that that are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. But other than that, we will one day die. And after that, the judgment. Well, the next verse says, but to those that look for him will he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. No, for Christ also was once offered to be the sacrifice, to be the judgment. And to those that look for him, will he appear the second time without sin? And he's not coming to be a sacrifice for sin the next time. He's coming to be the judge of all the earth, the lamb that will sit on the throne. I do not know what he's reasoning with this man about, but I dare say he may have said something to him about on this level. He, you know that this God I'm talking to you about, Yahweh, do you know that he is going to judge? He judges nations. You've read your history. The fall of Babylon in one night. 
I mean, the Medes and Persians said, this city is too great to destroy. How can we get in and destroy it? A big drunken party is going on, and they're using the vessels of the Lord that they had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, and it's a big hoopla and a writing on the wall, many, many, tekel, you farce, and that stuff is going on. All the while, the Medes and the Persians are coming in. They dammed up the river, and they came in, and without a shot being fired, they're conquered back. It fell in one night. Nations that run worlds fall in one night because God so deems it that way. Did you see that? How do you know God raises up nations to judge other nations? We may think we're calling the shots in these nations. We are not. There's a God in heaven that judges nations. Maybe he talked to him about the Egyptians. Maybe he talked, and I don't know. Maybe he even gave him information like out of John's revelation, which wasn't given yet, but in John's revelation, Jesus revealing to John of things that are going to happen. And he says in Revelation 6, in about verse 12, 13, 14, somewhere over here, it says this. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every slave and every free, hid, free man hid themselves in the, mountains and in, in the mountains and in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said, fall on us and hide us from the face of the Lamb. For the great and terrible, from the face of him who sit upon the throne, from the wrath of the lamb for the great and terrible day of his wrath is come isn't that interesting at the end times the kings the, all the people the nations when this great judgment day comes they're going to be expecting it they know it planet earth cannot keep doing what we're doing god says i'm going to judge the sin i've judged it in christ get in on that escape the wrath you don't have to be a child of wrath but he says there's a day of judgment coming and nobody's going to escape. He says, and who shall be able to stand? I can answer that one for you. There is a day coming when the name of Jesus will be mentioned and every knee, every knee is going to bow and say, you're right, you're Lord, you're to the glory of God the Father. It's going to happen. Our source of truth. John the Baptist is preaching in the wilderness. He doesn't... He doesn't go downtown Jerusalem. He goes to the wilderness of Israel, Bethbara beyond the Jordan. And the multitudes come to him. And he's preaching. And it says, a great number of Pharisees and Sadducees came to his meeting. And as he saw them, this wild-eyed prophet that's never had a haircut or a shave, in a camel hair leathered kind of girdle soup, wild looking individual. He had a diet, he was just bone and sinew. They hadn't had a prophet in Israel for 400 years. Do you know what most of the prophets did? They gave warnings of judgment. People of God, repent or God will judge you. You read Jeremiah, it's repent or God's going to judge you. Read Jeremiah, repent or God's going to judge you. In the middle of Jeremiah, his message changed and said, repent, God's going to judge you anyway. How of you know you can only, his spirit will not always strive with man. Would you agree with that? You read the book of Genesis, finally in the days of Noah, God said, that's it. That's it. And he judged the entire world with a great flood. Oh, Tom, you don't believe that. Whether I believe it or not is immaterial. You don't make something true by believing it. This is my source of truth. If it says it, I believe it. The world was judged with a great flood. God judged it. God sent that flood. We're getting a picture of the, the character of God. You see, 
so many times, and we, I, I love to preach on the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, and all, if, if that's all we do, how do you know that any truth taken to an extreme will soon become heresy? I need some tension to that. I need to be pulled over here and say, okay, what about God's love and his, what about God's justice? How do those things go together? Is he not just? God could not love if he were not just. He would be incapable of the kind of love he has if he were not just. As the Pharisees and Sadducees came to his meeting with bony fingered and loud voice, he cried out, you brood of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Isn't that interesting? The greatest prophet, born of woman, lips of Jesus, preached a message of warning of future wrath that was coming. Paul told Timothy in his last letter from the Mamertine prison, chapter 4, verse 1, he said, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, he said, I charge you, he's going to judge him, living and dead. Small and great will one day stand before God, and he's going to judge him. He said, now the time's going to come when men will not endure sound doctrine. Isn't it interesting, after a statement like that, he says sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall heed to themselves teachers having itching ears. One of the largest churches in Michigan is a church where a man pastors and says, everybody's going to heaven no matter how you are and what you do and where you... That's not true. That's not true. That appeals to us. But that is not true. This is the source of truth. I wonder about the, the devil and demons. I wonder if they believe in the judgment of God, about a day coming when God's going to judge the earth. Let me give you one verse. It's in, this same verse is in Mark chapter 1, about verse 35. But let me give you Matthew chapter 8, verse 29. Jesus is teaching, and a man who has an unclean spirit or a wicked spirit that has taken possession of this man, when Jesus comes there and begins doing his teaching, the man stands up and says, the demon out of the man says, we know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth, thou son of God, thou holy one of Israel. Have you come to torment us before the time? That wicked spirit knew, knows there's a time coming when my kingdom of darkness is going to be judged by that man, Jesus. Have you come to torment us before the time? There is no verbal answer, but can I tell you what the answer is? Yes. Yes, I have come to torment you before the time. My presence, there isn't room for yours. The two kingdoms do not coexist. This is the kingdom of God, and it is going to judge the devil and the demonic world. In James chapter 2, verse 19, he says, Thou believest that there is one God? Good theology, says the demons believe also and tremble. There's a lot of people. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He believed in God. But he went through the New Testament and took out everything that had to do with the sacrificial death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's on display in Washington called the Jefferson Bible. It's 70 pages. He believed in God. There's a lot of people that believe in God that do not know God. God is everybody's God, but he's not everybody's father. He's only father to those who receive Jesus the Son as their Savior and get that birthright in Christ. They're born again in Christ. The plea is, oh man, receive Christ, escape the judgment. Get the judgment that's already been passed upon your Savior so that you cannot be a child of wrath. Demons. 
By the way, it says the demons believe also and tremble. Felix, when he hears Paul, however he's reasoning to him about judgment, it says he trembled. He trembled. Paul was well acquainted with that. I think Paul saw in the face of Felix a man whom God was speaking to. Now, he'd listened to the righteousness. He'd listened to the temperance. He's negotiating all them. But when he moved into that arena of judgment to come, he trembled. Do you know that Paul trembled on the road to Damascus when the light from heaven shone and the voice spoke to him in the Hebrew tongue saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It says, he fell down trembling and said, who are you? He said, I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. He said, what do you want me to do? He got it. In his trembling, he responded in faith. You are the one I've been fighting all along. Oh, God, what do you want me to do? And he commissioned him to the Gentiles. How many of you remember the story of the, Philippi the account of the Philippian jailer? Any of you familiar with that? I can't see, and this isn't one of those kind of messages where you talk a lot. How many of you are familiar with the Philippian jailer? Enough of you that I'm just going to shorten this. Remember, he had been beaten, put in the jail in Philippi. And Paul and Silas, at midnight, were singing praises to God. As they were singing praises to God, a great earthquake took place. It said that the foundations of the jail were shaken. The doors flew open. And that's a natural phenomenon, but for the stocks to fall off is not. Handcuffs don't loosen up. And by the way, the Greek word is manacles. They don't fall off in an earthquake. Doors open, room shake, handcuffs stay on, but it says all their stocks fell off. Paul and the rest of the prisoners went to the hallway and looked down to where the turnkey was, the jailer. As they looked down there, he looked and saw them and said, they're about to escape, nothing I can do. They'll kill me for letting them go. I'm going to take my own life. And in desperation, he's about ready to take his Roman 18-inch sword, double-edged, fall on it, and take his own life. And Paul hollered out, do thyself no harm. We're all here. It says he ran down to Paul's cell and fell down trembling. He was encountering God. I believe Felix was encountering God through the aspect and the truth of judgment. And he's trembling. Now, he didn't respond right. He gathered himself very quickly. He said, you go away. When I have a convenient season, I will call for you. God calls you to salvation tonight. Strike while the iron's hot. Respond to God. You put God on your time table of convenience. And can I tell you something? You may never have another. I'll guarantee you this. You'll go a long time before you hear a message like this again. This one's vanished from our pulpits in America. It's gone. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to have you turn to Second Peter. We're talking about Satan and demons and their knowledge, their awareness of a coming judgment for them. Let me read to you from verse 4 
Second Peter chapter 2, the entire chapter handles this masterfully, but I just want us to look at this. Verse 4 says, For if God spared not the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness, to be reserved unto the judgment. There is a host of wicked spirits that are in chains. How do you chain a spirit? Can I tell you something? God has a chain that works on holding spirits. This isn't one time. There's three different places in Scripture where this is mentioned. Look at the next verse. Another act of judgment. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. That was a judgment of God. Some people say, I don't believe a loving God would send anybody to hell. I don't either, but I believe a just one would. This is a just God. This is a God that says, I'm not running a bluff, I'm telling you. You say, what about people who've never heard? There is nobody that's never heard. Let me give you the verse. Romans chapter 1, verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest or made evident in them, for God has shown it to them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by that which is made, even his eternal power and Godhead. No matter how hard we try to deny there is a designer behind all of this, it's our attempt to try to say there is no God. And God says, I'm speaking to you through every sunset, every fragrance of a flower, every song of a bird must tell you there is a God, a maker, and he made you. That is in the heart of us. So when a man stands before God and said, you never told me, he said, I spoke to you again. That's despising the riches of his goodness and his forbearance and his long-suffering with us. Would it be a horrible thing to get your three score and ten or by reason of strength four score and never come to the knowledge of God? When God says, I'm speaking to you, I'm calling you, I'm turning you, come on. It's in us to know this. Let me read another verse. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, how could a loving God ever take all those people in those five cities of the plains and rain down fire and brimstone? How would a loving God, because he's a just God, he judged them. just a few pages over to the postcard epistle of Jude if you wanted to read become familiar with what the early church was being taught go to the book of Jude what is it 25 verses maybe yeah 25 verses very short book and he says uh, he was compelled to write this letter this is the half-brother of Jesus Jude his name was Judah but Judas, whose name was Judah, had ruined the name. So I didn't call him Judas, I called him Jude. He said, I was compelled to write this, that you would earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. You want to know what the early church was taught, what they were told? Listen to this. Verse 5, I will therefore put you in remembrance of these things, though you know them, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. Can you imagine going through all the signs and wonders of Egypt, getting out and doubting because of a few giants in the land of promise that God wasn't able to deliver? He's opened up the Red Sea. He's led you with a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. Your shoes don't wear out. I mean, God has taken care of his people. But a few giants in the land, and they doubt and turn back. And he said, I destroyed that whole generation. And there's a God of... They were his people. 
Look at the next verse. And the angels, here we are again, who kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, hath he reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, under the judgment of the great day. There's a judgment, a great day of judgment coming. He said that he delivered him into everlasting chains of darkness, even, here he goes again, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going about after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Let me give you a verse out of, Romans, out of Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. This is a verse I say every day of my life. This is in my morning prayers. And the devil that deceived them will one day be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And inside of me I go, yes, he deserves that. That's exactly what he should get. Hell. Matthew 25, 41. In Matthew 25... God is separating the sheep from the goats, believers from unbelievers. Those on my right hand, he says, enter into my rest that I prepared for you for eternity. Those on the left hand, he says, depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Ah, ah. Is the Bible true? Is that Revelation 25, 15 stuff true? And whosoever's name was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's where the devil deserves to go, but not us. No human being. God would never do that. It's vanished from our pulpits. There was a man by the name of William Booth. He was founder of the Salvation Army. He was basically booted out of the Church of England for his zeal for the poor, the downtrodden. When they booted him out, he and his family took off and said, we're going to minister. We're going to feed these poor people. We're going to treat their wounds. We're going to comfort them, and we're going to share the gospel with them. And his ministry, God blessed. And I can tell you this, people all over England were getting saved and getting help, and pretty soon other Christians that had resources began to pour them into this. And after a while, I got news for you, this ministry is going global. When he died, there was a Salvation Army in every, on every continent, and there were like six, no, 800 different Salvation Army groups ministering throughout the world. It had exploded. The largest funeral in England, in London, up until Princess Diana was William Booth. The Queen of England attended her, his funeral. Well, he was born in 1829, died in 1912, and at the turn of the century, the beginning of the 20th century, the one we just finished, the one I will have lived most of my life in, I won't live as many years in the 21st century as I lived in the 20th century. At the turn of the century, he was now world class. He was known. He was an honored person. People wanted him to come and talk. They wanted those army groups. They wanted the church to learn how to do evangelism like he was doing. Not just preaching sermons at people, but taking them into their homes and feeding them and clothing them and comforting them and discipling them and training them. Great ministry. Just, William Booth had just a great ministry. And so because of his popularity, at the turn of the century, a reporter came to him and says, Mr. Booth, what will the church face in the 20th century? And this is what he said. He said, the church will face Christianity without Christ, salvation without regeneration, 
forgiveness without repentance, religion without the Holy Spirit, politics without God, and heaven without hell. I think he nailed it. Nobody preaches on hell. Talk to me about heaven, but don't tell me about hell. My God, but not the God I've got in my mind. Nobody will go to hell. I sat under the ministry of a brilliant pastor. He had a PhD in theology. <laughs> I just love this brother. Just retired. And I sat at his feet and grew so much. He was just a, a wonderful Bible teacher. And one day I asked him, I said, uh, you know, I've never heard you do a sermon on hell. No. I said, uh, do you believe in hell? He said, uh, it's in my theology, but you asked me if I believed in it. He said, if I really believed in hell, I'd be in some dark corner in a fetal position, unable to move at the thought of people I know that are there. If you see, it's in my theology, but do you believe that? When I compromise with a passion to want to share the gospel with somebody that may be heading there without the good news that Jesus saves. What is he saved from? People say, you talk about being saved. Saved from what? From the wrath of God. I am no longer a child of wrath. You read 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, both of them. They talk about you are no longer a child of wrath. Anybody outside of Christ is under the wrath and judgment of God. I'm not going to get into all the things about hell. It's a place of darkness. It's a place of falling. It's a place of chains and bondage. The scriptures are there. One drop of water is the most valuable thing to a person in hell. Just dip his finger, tit, the tip of my tongue. It's longing, wishing you had, and wishing someone would go and tell them. Go tell my loved ones, lest they come to this horrible place. In Hebrews 10, 29, it says, of how much sorer punishment ye suppose them worthy who have trodden underfoot the Son of God. Since the crescendo of the cross, the judgment is greater. And I think we have more to answer for because we have the gospel clearly. It is finished. The message of redemption. If you're still in Jude, let's go to the last, to verses 22 and 23. I know why preachers don't preach on this subject. I just assume not. A steady diet of it would drive us mad at the thought of a place of eternal judgment and separation from God. It's like Cain said, my judgment is more than I can bear. This is more than we can imagine having to bear. Listen to this. Verse 21 in the book of Jude, it says, and of some have compassion making a difference. Preach the love of Christ to them. They'll respond to the love of Christ and come. But listen to this and of others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted with the flesh. If I totally neglect, if I say, I'm going to preach some of the counsel of God, 
and I'm just going to omit this one out and leave it out. Can I tell you something? Good men, sound of the faith, brilliant theologians, I couldn't carry their baggage, have taken this subject and thrown it to the wind and somehow did the hermeneutical gymnastics to say there is no place called hell and no place of judgment. And I look at the book and say, how do we interpret Scripture? The basic rule of scripture interpretation is this, the plain literal sense of a passage should be accepted unless there's a form or a context that would indicate otherwise. When you look at this subject, there's no form, it's not parables. There's no other way to go through, there is a, just as there is an eternal heaven prepared by God, as wonderful as he can prepare it, so is the place that he said he prepared for the devil and his angels and the wicked go there as well. It's as horrible as God can prepare it. The justice of God, punishment, penalty. I used to do a lot of preaching at teen camps and stuff, and it's old, I don't do that anymore, I guess. But I remember one time preaching to a senior high group, and I didn't have more than five minutes on that subject in a sermon I preached. And I said, there'll be no friends in hell. That's one of the few things. You'll, have no, you'll be on your own there. You can't go to somebody and get some help. It's a madhouse. There's no hope. You do a million years and get out, there's hope. There's no hope in this place. And I said, there'll be no friends in hell. I gave the invitation. And a number of high school students came forward. One of them was a young lady. Afterwards, I talked to her. She was 18 years old. And she said... I didn't want to come to this camp. My mom forced me to be here. He, she said, we had a big blow up afterwards. I've been running with a crowd that she's trying to get me not to run with. And I got in an argument and she says, honey, I'm afraid you're on the road to hell. And I looked at her and says, good, because all my friends are going there, so I don't care if I go there or not. And she came and heard that there'll be no friends in hell. And she, God spoke to her. You're on your own there. It's a horrible place. Well, I do know this much. As Paul reasoned, as Paul reasoned with Felix, Felix trembled. Is there a place I can get through right here? The Bible has other verses that would indicate it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It just is. It's sobering. I may have offended some here tonight by preaching this. But if I seek the favor of men as opposed to the favor of God, I shouldn't be preaching. Because when I give an account of this sermon tonight, it won't be before you. It'll be before God. I wouldn't want my worst enemy to go to hell. I wouldn't want people who said the worst things about me to go to hell. And neither does Jesus. And to prove it, he died so that we wouldn't have to. I don't have to do anything to remain in a condemned state. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he's not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. I'm going to ask you all to stand with me for a few moments. I've been standing. Just stand with me.
The invitation I'm going to give is going to have no soft music. I will not make any kind of emotional manipulative pleas. I would get on my knees and plead with you of God's speaking to you tonight. And there is in your soul a true knowledge you need to trust Christ. And you come tonight and trust Christ. Get it settled. If he's speaking to you and in your soul, you know you're trembling and saying, how long am I going to keep telling God when I'm good and ready, I'll come to you? That's a dangerous game. That's a dangerous game. You say... I need, I've been a good person, I've been, and you see, your good works ain't worth a dime. I've been religious, it isn't worth a penny. It's Christ. Have you ever received the person of Christ? Maybe you've even received Christianity. It's possible. But you've never received the person of Christ in your life. But to as many as received him, as many, if you're hearing his voice tonight, you need to come and treat, receive Christ, trust Christ, commit your life to Christ then would you come? I'm just going to ask you in a few moments when I say the invitation's open just to come up and kneel right here. Just kneel. When one or two or ten just kneel, I don't want anybody to close their eyes and bow their heads. I want your heads up, eyes open and looking around. You want to know why? These will be your witnesses that God's dealing with you tonight. You need that. If you can't stand for him here, you won't stand for him out there. There's people here that will rejoice with the angels in heaven if God saves you tonight. And he can save you. I get, he's the only one who can. The preacher can't. The sermon can't. God can. And you're coming to him and saying, I'm all done fighting you. I want Christ in my life tonight. And you just kneel here. And after a few moments, I'll say the invitation is closed. I will lead you in a simple sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer has never saved anyone. But God has saved a whole lot of sinners who prayed. How many of you got that? You come a sinner and pray for salvation. Prayer is where God and human beings meet. He'll save you in a heartbeat. He'll save you before you come up here and go through the prayer. He'll save you. But he won't save you if you say, a more convenient time, a more convenient time. Then I'll have a prayer with you. I'll pray for you and I'll ask you your first name. I want to get your first name. And I'll write it down on my prevailing prayer list and pray for you every day for the next two weeks. Getting your name in my prayer book is immaterial. Getting your name in the Lamb's book of life is big stuff. You submit to God, he'll pin her down. He'll put your name down. Well, Heavenly Father, the moments come. Give grace to those you're calling to step out in faith and come and trust you. The invitation is open. If God's speaking to you, and you know it, you want to get her settled. Come on up here and kneel. I'll kneel with you in a little while and pray with you. It's in your court. You deal with God, anybody. You believers, keep your heads up, but you go to prayer. Someone may be standing between heaven and hell and struggling. God bless you, just kneel right here. Say, I want in on this. Pray for someone. Maybe for someone you know that's rebelled against God and fighting God. It's okay to wrestle with God. Don't wrestle against Him. Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. He didn't wrestle against Him. 
It's a fool's errand to wrestle against God. And then I would say this to you, if you're wrestling, lose. Just lose. Because when you lose, you'll win. When you lose yourself, you find yourself. Anybody else? Just come ahead on. Just kneel here. How many of you would agree this is a good night to get saved? It is a good night to get saved. For some people, this feels like an eternity to stand here in silence. For some people, it is an eternity. Come right over here on this side. Come right over here. If he's calling you, I pray you respond in faith. Come on. Last call. Seventy-four-year-old man came forward two weeks ago. And he said, God told me to get up there. He had to repent of his good works. He was a good guy. He was trusting in that, not in Christ. And when he began to negotiate with the Holy Spirit over why he shouldn't come, been in church his whole life, etc., God said, I won't tell you again. And he said, fear gripped me. I may never have God speak to me about salvation again. You may hear about salvation, but you never have him speak to you. The voice knocking at the door. Anybody? This invitation is closed. God's is not. His is open 24-7, 365. But I want to say lovingly, <laughs> it would be a kindness of God to make you miserable until you come to salvation. That you couldn't even sleep tonight without rolling out on your knees and crying out for salvation. The rest of you just join me. Would you please in this prayer? I'm going to ask you all just to pray this prayer after me, trusting that this is what God would have you do. Just say this, would you? Oh, dear God, God of heaven, almighty God, I confess my sin to you. I confess Jesus died for my sin and that he was buried and rose again. And right now, I receive him as my Savior and Lord, in Jesus' name. 
Heavenly Father, I thank you for these who've come tonight to put their faith in Christ God. You knew this before the foundations of the world. I pray that you would seal them with your Holy Spirit of promise under the day of redemption. God, I pray that you would write their name, your hands, on the very heart of God in the Lamb's book of life. Oh God, I pray you'd raise them up be mighty men and women of God. I pray you'd send people into their life and circumstances that would enhance their walk in you. They would grow in grace. I pray that dear Heavenly Father, they would embrace the truth of who they are now in Christ and move on in the journey. That right down this day, August 4th, 2016, face your camp, I put my faith in Christ. I'm not looking back. Oh God, I pray you'd strengthen their faith, even from the get-go. Take them from where they're at and move them to where you want them to be. Fill their lives with peace. Give them a season to regroup and gather themselves. Oh dear Heavenly Father, may we rejoice with you and those in the presence of the angels in heaven over one sinner who repenteth and comes to you tonight. Thank you for the grace given to them. God, they are saved according to the riches of your grace. And we thank you for it. In the precious name of the Lord Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.